Good morning. You can find your seats. As we begin our study this morning, I know I don't have to tell this congregation this truth, but we're here at this time, this dark time in our world, to share the gospel of Jesus Christ with those that we're called to reach. Amen? But the world is corrupt. Have you figured that out already? The world is a very dark and corrupt place, and there are many people, especially those in power, who, quite frankly, are just horrible human beings. Awful people to be around. But the truth is, we are called to reach all people for Jesus Christ. And I know what you're thinking. Well, certainly not him. Certainly not her. Certainly not that person. But the truth is, we're called to reach all those that God gives us the opportunity to reach. There are people, some people so wicked and evil and corrupt, that if you're honest with yourself, oh, not me, of course, but if you're honest with yourself, you've prayed that they wouldn't make it into heaven. But maybe you didn't say it out loud. Maybe you just thought it, or maybe you just wished it, or maybe in your flesh you thought that person under no circumstances should spend eternity with Jesus Christ. And yet, Paul was such a person. You, here's the news flash, you were such a person. When you were dead in your trespasses and in your sins, you were that person. It was you, it was me, it was us. So Paul, in this morning's study in chapter 24 of the book of Acts, is going to have an interaction with someone who probably fits into the category of those who are so corrupt and so wicked and evil that most people think they don't deserve a second chance. He's going to be speaking to Governor Felix, and he's going to be actually appearing before this governor in Caesarea. In chapters 24, 25, and 26 actually, are all about Paul's witness in Caesarea. We've just sort of finished his witness in Jerusalem, but now we're talking about his witness in Caesarea, which was this city about 65 miles to the north of Jerusalem. And as he makes it to this very Roman city, the home of procurators and governors, the seat of Roman power in the Middle East and in Judea, he's going to be before one of the most wicked, corrupt individuals who were in power at this time. We talked a little bit about him last week. The most important thing you're going to see when we get to the end of this morning's study is that Paul looked at this as a missions opportunity. He looked at it as an opportunity to reach someone that doesn't deserve God's love. But I got news for you. None of us do. Let's pray. Lord, Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning and we're asking for you to give us wisdom. Help us to make application from your word. Help us as we open your word to know not just the truth of your word, but the truth for our lives. Each and every one of us are going to go home with something different today that you've spoken to our hearts and to our lives by a word of prophecy or or, or encouragement or whatever it is that you choose to do through your word. In order for that to happen, we need your Holy Spirit. The anointing of your spirit to give us ears to hear, eyes to see, minds to comprehend, the things that you desire to show us from your word. I pray that you do that and anoint us as we open your word and myself as I share it, that you would receive all the glory. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Well, first I'd like to look at just verse 1. You remember that Paul was just transferred to Caesarea for his own safety as much as for the fact that Paul needed to stand before the Sanhedrin. He was, he was in trouble because there was a riot and the Sanhedrin was accusing him of certain things. And we'll get to that. But he finds himself, five days later we read in verse 1, the high priest Ananias went down to Caesarea. So they got Paul out of Jerusalem and now the Jews have realized, the Sanhedrin realized he's no longer in Jerusalem. They were trying to kill him. But now he's safely set up in Caesarea, living in Herod's palace. So we read, five days later, the high priest Ananias went down to Caesarea with some of the elders and a lawyer named Tertullus. And they brought their charges against Paul before the governor. Paul was accused of rebellion by the Sanhedrin. Well, the worst thing you can be accused of in a Roman society, for Rome was all about safety, security, and keeping the peace. They justified their brutal conquering of the world by the fact that wherever they went, they brought law and order. Now, we like law and order. But there's a balance, because where there's no law and order, no one's safe. But where there's too much, no one's free. And as, of course, we've, we've seen over the last few years, there's this balance that, that has to come into to play where, you know, how much law and order do I want? Do I want my papers checked every time I go out of the door to the supermarket? Or do I want a free-for-all where at any moment at the supermarket I could be killed? But Rome took the position, right or wrong, they took the position that order must be maintained at all costs. So, rebellion was a problem for Paul. Now, he's a Roman citizen, so he has a right to a, free tri- uh, a fair trial, and he's free until they choose to incarcerate him. He's currently being held in protective custody. So, please understand, that this isn't all bad news for Paul. They have to prove their case. But if he's found to be guilty of rebellion and sedition, he could be put to death. So, Ananias, the high priest, brought charges against Paul before the governor, Governor Felix. And he arrived five days after Paul was moved from Jerusalem to Caesarea and placed in protective custody. He was accompanied by some of the members of the Sanhedrin and a lawyer named Tertullus, who we'll talk more about in a minute. In fact, Tertullus is going to present this case before Governor Felix. Let's look at verses 2 through 9. Here's the case. It's kind of weak. If we have any attorneys here, I'm sure you'll see through it right away. Verse 2, when Paul was called in, Tertullus presented his case before Felix. We have enjoyed a long period of peace under you, and your foresight has brought about reforms in this nation. Everywhere and in every way, most excellent Felix... We acknowledge this with profound gratitude. But in order not to weary you further, I would request that you be kind enough to hear us briefly. We have found this man to be a troublemaker, stirring up riots among the Jews all over the world. He is a ringleader of the Nazarene sect and even tried to desecrate the temple. So we seized him. By examining him, by examining him yourself, you will be able to learn the truth about all these charges we are bringing against him. The Jews joined in the accusation, asserting that these things were true. Well, he's being framed. I'm sure we all realize that. There's no real proof other than a bunch of people who hate him saying he did it. But Tertullus presents this case. Now, Paul was summoned to appear before his accusers. This was a part of the Roman trial, 
the Roman judicial system. He has that right to appear before his accusers. We enjoy that right today. Well, Tertullus began by ingratiating himself with the governor. As you can see, it's an ancient art for lawyers to kiss up to the judge. But as he is ingratiating himself, he charges Paul with starting trouble and stirring up riots among Jews all over the world. Now, here's the problem. If, if in the Roman world, your MO is that you're out there causing riots and rebellion and trouble, the simple answer in Roman justice is to take off your head. Because without your head, you can't start trouble. That's the answer. But they can't do this unless they do it in a way that's orderly. Because the Romans, as much as they were about brutal justice, they were about law and order. So, the Sanhedrin had conspired together to kill Paul. This is all a facade. This is all a farce, really, because they had actually conspired to kill Paul. But their conspiracy had been discovered. Paul was moved at night, five days earlier, to Caesarea for his own safety. Now they were determined to have him punished by the Roman authorities. If we can't kill him, let's get the Romans to do it. Does that sound familiar? You know, when, when you're being treated the way Jesus was treated, you're probably on the right track. If anyone here over the last few years or months has been mistreated the way that Jesus was mistreated, count it a blessing to suffer for the name. Amen? Recognize that as you look to serve Christ and become more like Christ, the world, the corrupt world, is going to treat you as the corrupt world treated Christ. The Bible is replete with examples and Jesus' own words that would, that would encourage you to know this truth. You are going to be abused simply because you remind them of your Lord. And I don't like that any more than you do, but it's still true. The thing that probably surprises me the most isn't that that happens. It's that Christians in America throw up their hands and say, Oh, how dare you persecute me? As if for some reason Americans aren't allowed to be persecuted for their faith. Well, I think we all got over that. I think we all know that that's not true. Christians are persecuted for their faith throughout the world and certainly in our own country and even in this state and even in this area of this state. It happens. It's a bad thing. We don't like it. But please understand something. It's to be expected. And as the world gets worse and the, the world gets darker and, and we each day get closer and closer to the Lord's return, amen, we can expect that what's going to happen in our lives is more and more of the same. So, they were determined to have him put to death, punished by the Romans. That's what they did to Jesus. That's what they want to do to Paul. Rebellion was frequent, yet a very serious charge in Palestine, which was known as a very rebellious part of the world. And it is interesting how certain rebellions are taken more seriously than others in our country, right? You can have a summer of, oh, should I call them peaceful protests? And no one says boo, and then you have one afternoon at the Capitol, and then all of a sudden, you know, it's the worst thing that ever happened. You can see that our media skews everything in the favor of those who are wicked and evil. I'm just going to be honest. So, you know, okay, so get over it, though. Why should you get over it? Because we've been told in advance that these things are going to happen. We throw up our hands and we say, oh, there's such injustice in the world. There always has been and there will be until Christ comes again. So what? So now what? Now what do you do with that? Because if you spend all of your time trying to beat back the tide of injustice against people of good moral conscience and Christians, you're going to waste your time for a very long time. There's nothing you're going to do that's going to stop that. 
at this point in our world. So what do you do with the time that you have? What do you do with the opportunities that God presents you? Well, that's where Paul becomes a great example. Anyway, Paul's identified as a ringleader, a ringleader of a rebellious Jewish sect. And that's just not true. The Jews referred to the church as the Nazarene sect because Jesus was from Nazareth. So they called them Nazarenes. The Jews that were persecuting the church also referred to Christians as the way, identifying them as sort of a a way that people have chosen to go apart from the right way. They considered it the way, inference being the wrong way. Well, he accused Paul, this lawyer, Tertullus, of attempting to desecrate the temple, and that was a trumped-up charge as well. It wasn't even remotely true. They had initially seized Paul in order to judge them by their own law, but then they blamed the commander who took him into custody for seizing Paul and ordering them to appear before the governor. You see that in verses 7 and 8. They really, truly felt that they should have taken care of this problem and Rome should not have gotten involved. So they requested that the governor examine Paul to confirm the truth of their case against him. And so the Jews that had accompanied Ananias, the priest, and Tertullus, the lawyer, testified to the truth of these charges. And at first glance, you might be thinking, well, Paul's done for. But the Romans, again, as brutal as they were, they're very concerned about justice. They're very concerned about facts. I know facts don't matter all that much anymore in our world, but back then they actually did matter to some degree. Paul proclaimed his innocence, and he has the right to do so, before Governor Felix in verses 10 through 21. And let's read it. And most of this reads very quickly, for it's a narrative. We read that when the governor motioned for him to speak, Paul replied, I know that for a number of years you have been a judge over this nation, so I gladly make my defense. You can easily verify that no more than 12 days ago I went up to Jerusalem to worship. My accusers did not find me arguing with anyone at the temple or stirring up a crowd in the synagogues or anywhere else in this city. And they cannot prove to you the charges they are now making against me. However, I admit that I worship the God of our fathers as a follower of the way, which they call a sect. I believe everything that agrees with the law and that is written in the prophets. And I have the same hope in God as these men, that there will be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. So I strive always to keep my conscience clear before God and man. Well, after an absence of several years, I came to Jerusalem to bring my people gifts for the poor and to present offerings, and I was ceremonially clean when they found me in the temple courts doing this. There was no crowd with me, nor nor was I involved in any disturbance. But there were some Jews from the province of Asia who ought to be here before you and bring charges if they have anything against me. Or these who are here should state what crime they found in me when I stood before the Sanhedrin. Unless it was the one thing, this one thing, I shouted as I stood in their presence, it is concerning the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you today. Excellent defense. So much better than Tertullius's argument, right? First of all, he's pretty much in his opening argument said, you can't prove any of it. And if, and if you like courtroom drama, I know many people like courtroom drama, right? There's so many television series on courtroom drama and movies that are made. You know, you can't handle the truth. You know, that kind of stuff. We love that stuff, don't we? We eat it up. And a good opening and a good closing argument can oftentimes make the case. So the, the point is simply this. Paul does not need anyone to defend him. 
And he doesn't even need to worry about his own defense because he knows God has his back. God has already told him. We studied it last week. He's going to witness before the Caesar and all those in Rome. He's going to Rome. He knows that. God has assured him. He's given him a vision. There's no question. So Paul's not worried. He's not sweating it out. He's not sitting there with several lawyers trying to figure out his best defense. He's stating the truth and leaving the consequences to God. But here's the, here's the thing you have to see in Paul's opening argument or opening defense. How many times did he mention the resurrection? What is he really trying to do? Is he trying to defend himself or is he trying to share the gospel? I encourage you, look this week. You can go back over and read the section we just read. Up to verse 21. And I think you'll see that his opening defense is an excuse for preaching the gospel. It's just an opportunity for Paul to tell the truth about who Jesus is. And then you begin to see the heart of Paul. You begin to understand the the move of the Spirit in our lives. When the days grow darker, we need to make the most of every opportunity because the days are what? Evil. So what are you doing with the time you have? Oh, I'm all for protests. Oh, I'm all for standing up for what's right and combating injustice, for voting rights and all the things that we need to do in our country to secure power in the right hands. I'm all for those things, but I'm just telling you right now, those things are all secondary to preaching the gospel. In fact, I'm going to say something that might rub you the wrong way. You ready? If the world has to get darker and our nation needs to become more corrupt in order to reach more people for Christ, fine. I know that doesn't sound right, right? I mean, no one wants that. I said if. I don't want that to happen. But has anyone noticed, or am I the only one that has my glasses on this morning? Have you noticed that people's hearts are changing? The darker the world gets, the more wars and atrocities take place on our planet, and they are awful and evil and of the devil and demonic and not of God. But as we see more and more of these things happening, churches tend to become more full with people. And, and people start to read their Bibles more. And people are more open to conversations. You will get this question within the next few weeks. Is this the end of the world? People will ask you, what's going on in Ukraine? What does the Bible say about Russia? And, and those things are marginally important, but don't get lost in trying to predict what's going to happen next week or next month or next year. Get to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Turn things around as quickly as you can onto the subject of having a relationship with Jesus Christ. For as we know, he died on the cross for our sins and rose again on the third day, ascended into heaven, and is coming again to judge the living and the dead. You have to let the world know the only hope we have, and it isn't the midterm election. It's not the next presidential election. It's not the hope, as one of our senators unwisely said, that someone would assassinate the Russian president. We don't put our hope in stupid, silly things. We put our hope in God. We don't put our hope in politics. We don't put our hope in financial markets. I hope you know that by now, or gas prices staying low. It's amazing because Michelle and I were driving home last night. We're visiting family, and you know, I got gas this week for three forty-five nine. So three forty-five, right? Three forty-six. That's three dollars and forty-six cents. And then on the way home, we drove past a gas station that was closed that was in a, an entire dollar more. Now listen, this is all within like a couple miles. It's amazing how people will exploit a quote-unquote crisis for their own benefit, right? 
You're living in a corrupt world. That's the point I'm trying to make. You're living in a world that's thoroughly corrupt and can only be redeemed and saved when Jesus comes again. You and I, we can't fix it. A president can't fix it. A political party can't fix it. And I'm not saying you shouldn't pray for good things to happen in our nation. I'm a patriotic American. I want to see our country thrive. But I am willing to accept the truth that if the best thing for our world and for our nation and for our culture is to suffer in that more souls will go to be with Jesus Christ for all eternity, bring it on. I don't want to be martyred. I don't want to suffer. I don't want to be persecuted. But Paul said he was willing to experience all those things if the possibility of reaching the world for Christ was before him. And it is. So think about that. That should give you a heart correction. You should, you should be able to see things a little bit more clearly now as to why we're going through some of the things we're going through and the tremendous opportunities we have with friends and family, coworkers, and neighbors to preach the gospel. You can always get away with a little bit more when they're scared. And I don't like that they're scared, and I don't like that we have to live in this dark world, but I'll tell you what, I like that I can share the resurrection of Jesus Christ with people. Amen? Okay, so that gives us our perspective. That's just a, a perspective that Paul had that I think we need to adopt. But as he was proclaiming his innocence before Governor Felix, again, a very corrupt man, he was given the opportunity to defend himself. And he began by recognizing the governor's authority. Now, he didn't ingratiate himself to Felix, but he was respectful. And he declared that he was innocent of the charges of rebellion and desecrating the temple. And the Jews could care less about the temple, but they knew that if someone desecrated the temple, that would cause a riot. What, they, what, what did the Romans not like? Well, the Romans did not like riots. So that's why they're, you know, the, the Romans are not concerned or are not concerned about the temple, but are concerned about it being desecrated, okay? So now we see, he declared that he had absolutely, they had absolutely no proof that would justify their charges against him. No proof. If you can't bring proof, don't bother going to court, especially in a Roman court. But he freely admitted, quickly in verse 14, he freely admitted something else that probably didn't need to come up in his defense, But because he took the opportunity that God gave him, he admitted his belief in Jesus Christ as the Jewish Messiah. And isn't that awesome? We should find a way to work that truth into just about everything we have to say to people. The Jewish disciples were referred to as the way. Gentile disciples were referred to as Christians. Today, we're generally referred to as Christians, although some Jews are referred to as Messianic believers. But still, we're all Christians now. But at the time, Gentiles were called Christians because Christ is a Greek word, and Jews were called either the Nazarene sect or the way. And he boldly proclaimed his orthodoxy as a religious conservative Jew. He made that abundantly clear. See, he believed in the inspiration of the Jewish scriptures, which he told them here in in these verses, in verse 15. He believed in the inspiration of the Jewish scriptures as the word of God, and he believed in the resurrection, did you notice, of the righteous and the wicked? See, I think we think of a resurrection as we begin to prepare our hearts to celebrate Easter Sunday in the next few weeks. I think we think of the resurrection as something that's only available to those who put their hope and their faith in Jesus Christ, give their hearts to him, and proclaim him as Lord and Savior. Those we call saved. Christians. The truth is there's a resurrection of the wicked as well. 
In fact, Daniel talks about it in chapter 12, verse 2. Jesus talked about it in John's Gospel in chapter 5. There is a resurrection for each and every individual that's ever been born or even conceived. There is a moment when everyone will be judged. The day of judgment is coming. Here's how that kind of lays out. You see, God will spare those who've given their hearts to him through the person of Jesus Christ. The judgment that we receive or should receive has been placed upon him at Calvary's cross. So you have been spared judgment, but only because he took upon himself the judgment that you deserved. But if you reject Christ, then you receive what each and every one of us would have received had you not put your faith in him. But here's the thing. We know that the day will come where all the wicked will be resurrected, and they'll be given resurrected bodies to spend an eternity apart from us and Christ and abiding in the wrath of God forever. We call that word Hell. That's the word we use to describe an eternity, not so much apart from God, but apart from God's love. For God inhabits eternity. You really can't go anywhere where God isn't. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to heaven, you're there. If I go into the depths of the sea or the heart of the earth or hell itself, you're there. Everyone gets to spend eternity with God. Those that are wicked, they abide in his wrath. Those that are righteous in him, Abide in his love. So what we need to decide is whether or not we want to spend an eternity in the love of God. And that's why those of us who are here today who call ourselves Christians today can say confidently, whatever happens to me, the next life is so much better than this. But this is what he wants to get to. He wants to get to the resurrection. He wants them to understand that there is an eternity and the decision we make for Jesus Christ here and now will affect where you spend eternity. And Paul makes that clear. He wants them to know about Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus. He also testified to his spiritual obligation to proclaim the truth of Scripture and to live by it. Look what he says in verse 16. So I strive, he says, that is, I exert maximum effort. I strive always to keep my conscience clear before God and man. Now, having a clear conscience, we talked a little about a little about the conscience last week, but having a clear conscience is very, very important. That means you you don't go through life regretting things you haven't done or things you've done. And in order to do that, you need to have a clear conscience before God and man, not just God. But as he said here, God and man. You see, his conscience was clear before God because of his faith in the truth. You can have a clear conscience with God because you know God, through the person of Jesus Christ and his death on the cross and resurrection, has saved you from your sins. That clears your conscience. It doesn't make you a better person, necessarily. It doesn't make you all kinds of pure on the inside. You're still a wicked sinner. The difference is you happen to be saved, amen? For whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. So when our consciences are clear before God, they're clear before God because God has cleared our conscience. Are you with me? Say amen. Amen. Do you have a clear conscience before God? Well, if you have Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, if you've received him, then you are saved for all eternity. But that's the only way that that can happen. Now, what does it mean to have a conscience that's clear before man? Well, 
He had a clear conscience before man because of his obedience to proclaim that truth. And now I have a clear conscience before everyone in this room because I have proclaimed that truth faithfully. You see, when we don't proclaim the truth of God's word to a world that needs to hear it, our consciences are not clear. We may have a clear conscience before God, but your conscience can only be clear before men when you preach the word of truth, when you preach the gospel of Jesus Christ, which is what we've been talking about this morning thus far. Do you understand that? Say amen. I know some of you get nervous. Oh, I don't, I don't like to, you know, I don't like to, you know, listen, get over it. Times are dark. Time is short. Days are evil. If you love someone and you haven't shared the truth of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, or maybe you're just not gifted or you get tongue-tied, you could at a minimum invite them to church. Or if you feel that maybe they wouldn't come to church, maybe they'll come out for Good Friday service. Or Easter service, Sunday, Sunday service, Resurrection Sunday service. You know, these events are on our calendar, not just so that we can say, oh, well, you know, it's, it's Easter. We're going to have, you know, rabbits and eggs and all that good stuff and chocolate bunnies. And, you know, the family gets together, Easter dinner, have a ham, have a turkey, whatever it is you have. There's nothing wrong with those things in particular, although I, I might stay away from some of the bunnies and the eggs. Especially the chocolate ones. We don't need all those extra calories. But I will say this. Do you understand that this is a tremendous opportunity to, at a minimum, invite someone to hear the gospel? If you are not comfortable sharing the gospel, and I, I, I don't think it's that complicated, and, and I think you should be able to, but if you're not, you can, at a minimum, get them in a place where they can listen to the gospel. I mean, you can send them a YouTube video. You, you, you can do a lot to reach them with the gospel. I'm not trying to guilt anyone here. It's not about guilt. It's about having a clear conscience, though. Ezekiel understood it like this, that if he didn't preach what God had told him to preach, blood would be on his hands. Woe to me if I don't preach the gospel. I believe it was Jeremiah that said that. The idea that we need to do what we're called to do. Otherwise, what would be the point of even being in this dark, wicked world at this point? Why would anyone choose to be here? This is earth. They don't call it heaven for a reason. So I'm just trying to give you a perspective as we look at the life of Paul. I want you to see who he was, who he is, the kind of person he is. He's willing to put aside discomfort and inconvenience and suffering and all those things, if just for an opportunity to tell people about Jesus. Maybe you're not a missionary, but you haven't figured it out yet. You are. Okay, let's move on. And then he goes on, and this was wise, in verse 17... He explained that his reasons for traveling to Jerusalem were charitable and religious. And I only came here to give money to the poor. I mean, even the most wicked person has to respect that, right? You're giving money to the poor. And then he denied their accusation that he had attempted to desecrate the temple. Of course, that was a big fat lie. That was just someone said it in the crowd and then people started to believe it. That's all that is. You know, they call that fake news. Well... He blamed the people who really were at fault. And that was these group, this group of Jews from Proconsular Asia, Western Turkey at that, at that time, because it was called Proconsular Asia. He blamed them for causing the disturbance in the city, and he challenged his accusers to prove their case against him, which, which of course they couldn't do. One thing he did admit, and I love this, there was a bit of a ruckus in the Sanhedrin. And Paul admits that he, he caused that, maybe inadvertently, maybe by some of the words he shared, but it gives him another opportunity to share the gospel. It gives him another opportunity to talk about the resurrection because that's why the 
ruckus or riot broke out in the Sanhedrin. He did admit that he had made a divisive comment. You know, some of the comments you're going to make are, are what people might call divisive. I've already made a few of them today. I've said that if you're a Christian, you're going to heaven. If you're not, you're going to hell. That's pretty divisive, to be honest with you. It divides. That's what the word divisive means. It divides all of humanity into two categories of people. Get over it. The gospel is divisive. Or did Jesus not say, I came to bring a what? A sword. A sword divides. It cleaves. Understand, we're not trying to cause problems, but the gospel will. You understand that? Say amen. Okay. Now, he may have wanted to just explain why he was moved to Caesarea. He may have even wanted to try to unravel them before the governor, because if he could rock their boat a little bit, they would betray who they really are. But his declaration had caused a dispute between the Pharisees and the Sadducees back in Jerusalem. I don't know if Paul was hoping the same thing would happen or or just wanted to get the truth out there, the truth of the gospel. But he definitely made it clear. In verse 21... He said it this way, he said, unless it was this one thing I shouted as I stood in their presence, and here we go, it is concerning the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you today. I didn't count, but I think Paul mentioned that word a few times. You can see the heart of Paul. He's not that hard to read. He's got one string on his guitar, and it's the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And he plays it over and over and over again. Okay. Now, Governor Felix adjourned Paul's trial at this point. Look at verses 22 through 23. Then Felix, who was well acquainted with the way, that's interesting, adjourned the proceedings. And when Lysias, the commander, that's the commander from uh, Jerusalem, when Lysias, the commander, comes, he said, I will decide your case. And he ordered the centurion to keep Paul under guard, but to give him some freedom and permit his friends to take care of his needs. So he's in protective custody. He's not in a jail cell somewhere. Okay, so he's being cared for, being protected by the Roman judicial system. Not the worst place to be, but he was willing to give up his freedom for the opportunities that God would bring, and we'll see over the next few weeks, for him to share the gospel. Now, I love the fact that Felix was an individual who was well acquainted with Christianity. He referred to it as the way. We know a lot of people like this, don't we? Like, you might actually meet somebody from another part of the world who doesn't know anything about Christianity, might ask you some questions. I've had conversations with Muslims who legitimately didn't know what we do and who we are. There are people that literally, they just have no clue, but probably not a whole lot in this country unless they've recently arrived. So we're surrounded by people, many of which have gone to church their whole lives or grew up going to church. They they did their communion, their confirmation. Listen, there's people out there that know a whole lot about Christianity. You do not have to start from square one. But they do need to hear the gospel, and they may not have heard it yet. They may, they may not have, but they need to hear it. So here's the thing. This man is acquainted with the way. He knows what Paul is talking about. And I'm sure Paul knew this and realized this. So the number one thing on Paul's agenda right now is not his freedom. It's not his life. It's not his trying to avoid suffering. It's this. How do I get an opportunity to share the gospel with this wicked, corrupt Roman governor? What would you do if you had an opportunity to face off against someone like this? Would you be cursing them under your breath? 
Would you like some Old Testament prophet declare the judgment of the Lord against them? Would you pray for them? Would you pray against them? What would you do? I honestly don't know what I would do, but I know what Paul did. He preached the gospel. Caesarea was at the center of many events in the early church. And remember that God had used Peter to convert the first Gentiles in the city in Acts chapter 10. This region of the Roman world was becoming increasingly Christianized. So people knew who Christ was and what he had done and what his followers believed. I mean, even the pagans were starting to be familiar with the teachings of Christ. That's what we call a missions opportunity. So he adjourned the proceedings until the commander could testify before him, and he returned Paul the protective custody and allowed him the freedom to meet with his friends. Under house arrest, still protected by Rome, access to his friends, cared for by the church. Is God taking care of Paul? Say amen. Amen. Is God taking care of you? Amen. And he will. All right, so now we get to the last few verses here. And I really want to spend, well, not necessarily more time, but more emphasis on these few verses. Because in verses 24 through 27, Paul preaches the gospel of Jesus Christ to the Roman governor Felix and to his wife, Drusilla. Check this out. Verse 24, several days later, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was a Jewish. That's interesting. She's she's Jewish. He sent for Paul and listened to him as he spoke about faith in Jesus Christ. As Paul discoursed on righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come, Felix was afraid and said, That's enough for now. You may leave. When I find it convenient, I will send for you. At the same time, he was hoping that Paul would offer him a bribe. So he sent for him frequently and talked with him. When two years, two years, breathe that in. When two years had passed, Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus. But because Felix wanted to grant a favor to the Jews, he left Paul in prison. Probably received a bribe for that too. Wow. Two years. Governor Felix had to listen to Paul for the next two years. All Paul had to do was offer him a bribe. I'm sure he could have scrounged up the cash. But Paul didn't look at it that way. In the end, this man Felix only was using Paul for selfish gain, but Paul was using the opportunity to preach the gospel. Now, Portius Festus was appointed in Felix's place in about 60 A.D. History tells us that. So two years, from 58 to 60 A.D. Now, here's what happened. Because... Felix wasn't a nice guy. A riot broke out between Greeks and Jews for the control of the city of Caesarea. Felix sided with the Greeks against these victorious Jews. He had the Romans kill hundreds of Jews and sack their homes and goods. He later traveled to Rome to face charges of corruption by the persecuted Jews, and he was ultimately banished by Caesar Nero for his corruption. He was only spared execution through the influence of his brother, Pallas, who had gotten him the job as governor. So Felix left Paul under house arrest in order to court favor with these Sadducean Jews of Jerusalem. Why would he do that? Well, Pastor Tim, I thought you said he killed Jews. Yeah, but there were political parties among Judaism. In fact, the Sadducees had actually supported Felix against the riotous Jews. They were turncoats. They were 
people who turned on their own people. And they were supported by Felix. So after two whole years, Paul's still waiting for his case to be decided by Rome. And you might be saying, oh, poor Paul. He's so used to being out on, you know, on the mission field. And here he is stuck for two years with COVID. I mean, stuck inside under protective custody. Yeah, we know what that feels like. What can he do? What, what, what can be done? I, I should be out there. No, no, I'm, I'm stuck here. No, no, Paul didn't look at it that way. He saw an opportunity in this protective custody. He saw an opportunity to reach people and to reach this man in particular with the gospel and his, even his wife. Listen, the whole point is that Governor Felix summoned Paul to speak with him. These were powerful people. Why would they waste their time with a man like Paul? They had considerable influence. They were incredibly powerful people, but they were domestic partners as well. I just should point that out. They had a quote-unquote civil union, I guess. They They weren't married. They were living together in a publicly immoral relationship. And Drusilla was the daughter of King Herod Agrippa I. What a bunch of lunatics these people are. I mean, every to a person, every one of them is like off the, off the rails, right? She was the adulterous wife of Azizus, the king of Emesa, who left him to be Felix's third wife. So you can see this is a mess. These people are a mess. Their lives are a mess. Yeah, like everyone we deal with outside of Christianity and some within are a mess. The world's a mess. Christ is the answer. Amen? Well, Felix sent for him several days after he had joined Paul's trial, accompanied by his wife, who is again a Jew. He listens. And what does Paul do? Does he talk about the finer points of Roman justice and how he was treated miserably and how they can't prove his case? No. He shared his faith in Jesus Christ as the Jewish Messiah, which was the point. And Paul's probably thinking, if I could get another month, I got this guy up against the rails. I, I think I can get this guy saved. Well, Paul spoke to this corrupt, immoral governor about righteousness, self-control, and judgment to come. Those are heavy topics. Did you hear that? Righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come. I already told you about how these people lived. He shared with them their need to be saved. That's faith in Jesus Christ. I've shared that with you already this morning. As Paul shared it with them. He shared with them their need to repent of their sins. That's righteousness. You, you think of righteousness as doing right? Kind of. It's actually Christ's righteousness imputed to you through repentance and faith in the cross. So when he's talking about righteousness, he's talking about the righteousness of Jesus Christ in our lives because of our faith in Jesus Christ. Repentance. People don't want to talk about repentance. Repentance isn't a bad word, and it's essential for the gospel. And he shared with them their need to stop committing adultery. What? He did what? What? What What did he do? Well, he said self-control. What do you think he was talking about? These people were out of control. You don't think, seriously, a guy like Paul didn't go there? Self-control. Learn to control yourselves. You're living like animals. I don't know if he said it like that. I might have. He didn't, probably. (laughs) He still had his head on his shoulder, so he probably didn't. But... He didn't mind going there. Righteousness, faith, righteousness, self-control. And then he gets to the judgment to come. And we know he did because Felix was afraid. You tend to be afraid. Remember the chick tracks, guys? Remember the chick tracks? Some of you are older like me. You get to the last page and people are burning in hell. That's exactly how you respond. You get a little scared. You're like, what if it's true? Well, they weren't great comic books, but boy, it made a mark. I've never forgotten to this day when you get to the end of uh, this was your life, you know, and you, and you look and the guy's like thrown in hell and 
You're like, uh-oh, what if it's true? So he, got, he went there. He got there. The judgment to come. Should they refuse to repent of their sins, the judgment would come upon them. And Felix was afraid. He was afraid to listen to Paul as he shared his faith in Jesus Christ. See, the Holy Spirit used Paul to convict him of his sins. We don't know where Felix spends eternity. We don't have any idea what happened, but we know he heard the truth. He chose to resist the Holy Spirit, at least at this point, and dismissed Paul. And he suggested that he might speak with Paul again when it was more convenient. Has anyone ever pulled that on you? Oh, I'd love to hear more about this Jesus, but I got an appointment. Oh, you know what? I I better get to the mall before it closes. You know, I need to get gas. It's so expensive right now. You know, you're going to get all kinds of excuses of more convenient to do something other than sit and listen to a message about faith, righteousness, self-control, and judgment to come. And by the way, make sure your gospel message has all of those things in it. If it doesn't, it's something other than the gospel message. It's probably just a feel-good message and make it onto TV and onto certain television broadcasts from Houston. I don't like to name names. So, that's called sarcasm if you haven't picked up on that. I'm, it's, my, it's my third language. I speak English, Spanish, and sarcasm. I learned sarcasm before the other two. So, Governor Felix, Governor Felix, rotten, miserable guy. He continued, though, why? He wanted money, but you think there might have been a little bit more there? I suspect. He continued to frequently summon Paul and speak privately with him. Now, of course, he had originally summoned Paul to solicit a bribe. I think at some point over the two years, he realized, I'm not getting any money out of this guy. He continued to hope, perhaps, that Paul would pay him, but I think deep down inside, he knew he wasn't going to get anything. But Paul made the most of every opportunity to reach him with the truth of God's word. And as I asked the worship team to come up, and as we begin to prepare our hearts to receive communion, the take-home, what's the take-home? You know those little containers you get at the restaurant when you can't finish your food? Get one out. Because I want you to take this home. Paul made the most of every opportunity to reach him with the truth of God's word. And this guy definitely is a person that you and I, if we're going to be honest with ourselves, would clearly say deserves to be in hell. And in a category of people that we probably don't stay up all night praying and fasting, will receive the gospel. And yet Paul had a heart for him, such that he shared the gospel over and over again for two years. I'd like to believe, we don't know, but I'd like to believe at some point after everything went crazy and he lost his position and he found himself on the outs and banished from Rome, all the words of Paul came full force upon him and he surrendered his heart to Jesus Christ. Maybe, possibly, probably not, I don't know. But I know that he couldn't even begin to think about making that decision if Paul hadn't preached the gospel to him. He realized that these occasional convenient opportunities that is for Paul. These occasional convenient opportunities that Paul had were worth his own personal freedom. And so he stayed in protective custody for two years just to preach the gospel to him and perhaps others. It seems, though, that Felix became more and more interested in what he had to say over time. People do. They really do. There's something inside them in their conscience that makes them realize it's true. Oh, that chick track, it scared me, but I knew it was true. It took years before I surrendered to the truth, but I knew it was true. Here's the thing I want to encourage you with. They'll put on a brave face. They'll insult you. They'll criticize you. They'll make fun of you. They'll make you think that they don't want to hear it and they're not listening and that you've gotten nowhere. Don't believe it for a minute. 
As you share the gospel, God pricks the conscience. And it's the work of the Holy Spirit to reach the worst of human beings with the truth of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Lord, Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the encouragement. Lord, we look to, we look to you now. And we ask more than anything else that in these dark days you would extend our time for one soul purpose that we could share the gospel your gospel and the word of God with those that need to hear it may our focus not be on our IRAs and our portfolios and how they've taken a beating may our focus not be on the price of gas and the minor first world inconveniences of the last few weeks or maybe even years. May our perspective change and may we realize that we've been given an opportunity that most generations never have. An opportunity for revival. An opportunity to preach the gospel. An opportunity for hearts to be open and minds to be open and lives to be willing to serve. All we need to do is keep our consciences clear. So may our consciences be clear with you and with others. And as we receive communion today, and and I really want to stress this, Lord, may only those individuals who have a clear conscience before you come to the communion supper, come to the table and receive the elements that represent your death and your life, your resurrected life. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.